Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. I want to talk today about something important to all of us, our money. Specifically, I want to talk about the institution and the people primarily in charge of America's money, the Federal Reserve. The Fed has been in the news a lot, most recently about the controversy over President Trump's nominees to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And this debate has raised a lot of other issues, like modern monetary theory, linked currency systems, the global asset price to inflation, the Fed's independence, negative real interest rates, turning banks into regulated utilities, quantitative easing, and the Fed's goal to create inflation when I thought it was supposed to support sound money. Well, if you're like me, your eyes glaze over listening to this list. But I think we need to understand some of what is happening with our money and what the Federal Reserve is up to. With me to sort this out are two of the smartest monetary economists we have. Norbert Merschel is the director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis, where he specializes on issues pertaining to financial markets and monetary policy. Norbert? Bill, thank you. George Selgin is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute and professor emeritus of economics at the University of Georgia. George, welcome. Nice to be here, Bill. Well, let's dive right in. The Federal Reserve. Um, it's been with us a long time, since 1914. What was life like before the Federal Reserve, and why was it created? Well, the life wasn't that great. Uh, we had a series of bad financial crises culminating in the big crisis of 1907, the Panic of 1907. And the Federal Reserve ultimately grew out of uh, that panic, uh, which made everyone realize that we had to have reform. Most people assume that, therefore, it was a good solution and a necessary solution and a successful solution to the problem of panics. At least that has been the conventional wisdom. It's a little bit hard to maintain uh, these days in light of having or having had such a bad panic before. But what a lot of people don't understand is why we had those panics before the Fed. And that's really important because it wasn't because the government didn't regulate the monetary system before 1914. On the contrary, if you delve into the causes of those panics, you find bad government regulations of the monetary system that preceded the Fed's establishment that were absolutely crucial to the problems of that period. And that's what people should be aware of. It's not because we didn't Fed. have a central bank. Yeah, the, the Fed, the, Fed uh, uh, the justification of the Fed was that we needed to do something, and that was correct. Well, the people but, who said we needed to do something were the, uh, the New York banks. Well, that was the, they shaped the reform effort. So you had, you had people who had excellent ideas about how to fix the monetary system if, uh, in the years leading 1914 most of whom looked at Canada as a, as a good model for what the US, U.S. system uh, should have been like. And what they had in Canada was a decentralized system 
not as decentralized as ours, though, because they let their banks branch in more than 100 years before we started letting ours mm -hmm. branch. So they had about 40 banks that had branches all over the country. And uh, they were remarkably stable. They had no crises. And, and, and to be clear, when a bank, you have a headquarters and then you have all the branches. And if you have a lot of branches, you have a much more stable deposit base and lent a bigger lending book. You can diversify the lending exactly. over a bigger portfolio. And so it's a lot more stable. A lot right. more stable. And funds, when they're needed, can move from move. one part of the country to another just by yeah. moving from one branch within that of bank. the bank within to the another. bank. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had a job uh, as a young banker. I was head of strategic planning at Continental Bank in Chicago, if you remember that. Continental? We had a little problem with Continental yes. Bank. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Continental, <laughs> but Illinois at the time was still a unit banking state, right. which meant you can only have one, one office. I guess we could have one other one. We had about a mile, branch about a mile away. And Continental was very big in oil and gas lending when oil prices were $70 a barrel and when they fell to $14 a barrel, it was a big problem. And its deposit base was, I think we had assets of $45 billion, and $35 billion was borrowed from the Japanese overnight. Incredible. And so as soon as, as soon as things got bad, they withdrew their money, and the bank went right out. So that's the kind of thing that drives a bank out of business when you don't have a branch banking Absolutely. system. Absolutely. If you don't have the opportunity to diversify, both on the asset side and the liability yeah. side, you've got weak banks. And we had 30,000 tiny, mostly tiny, weak banks before the Fed. So we had structural problems. But they could have been directly solved with deregulation. Instead... There was a patch job done, mm -hmm. which was the Fed, where the Fed was supposed to make up for these structural deficiencies, which it never has done very well. Well, just one of the things I think, it's hard to conceive of life without the Federal Reserve in America or all the central banks in Europe and Japan, et cetera. But there are alternatives. And I, I've been reading about what your, your work has been. There's something called free banking which is where you don't really have a central bank, but you have a widely diversified group of banks, and each one of them issues notes and that sort of thing. And I think the Scottish had a very successful system. They did, indeed. Very stable. Very few losses to their yeah. uh, customers of the banks. No crises. The comparison between Scotland and England, which England, of course, had one of the oldest central banks, the Bank of England, but the comparison between those systems and the, that, the, that between... Canada and the U.S., very similar. In, in Canada, Scotland, you had free banking, decentralization, no central bank, and you had stability. Mm -hmm. In England and the United States, you had regulation. In England, you had a central bank before, nine, long before 1914. In the U.S., you had other kinds of very severe restrictions on banking freedom. And in both of those cases, you had tremendous instability. So and one of those, uh, Japan, uh, one of those sort of uh, sort of conventional critiques is that you had these competing banks with these competing notes, and it was it was chaotic, and nobody could understand you know what was going on because they had all these different types of money, and that actually isn't true, and that's like George's work has has uh, been better than anybody's in showing that that part of the system actually functioned in those okay. free systems, in not those in free the United systems. States where they had lack no, that's of right, branch. right, in yeah. those free systems, yes, so. And, and now with technology, especially the way it is, 
it, it would be nothing for anybody to have customized, uh, you know, sort of prices in any sort of, um, in, in any custom, or I'm sorry, any currency that they want. You know, if you shop on Amazon, Amazon could tailor the prices that you see much better than they could have done in that in that era. So in theory, we could have something like this if we had the political will or desire to do that? Well, there well might, it, it's a little tricky now, Bill, because uh, in those systems could rely on not having, didn't need a central bank because they had a defined monetary unit, defined in terms of gold or in, if you go further back, silver. And that unit, of course, had an existence that didn't depend on any public institution. In, in order to have uh, something like that today, you'd either have to somehow reestablish a metallic or independent monetary unit from uh, uh, independent of any institution, or you'd have to build a free banking system on the present fiat dollar. There mm -hmm. are ways to do that where you, you rely on the flexibility and uh, capabilities of the bank, commercial banks, once they're given freedom to do what they're capable of doing, to allow... Fed's power to be dramatically reduced mm -hmm. and basically have it operate like a little machine that just controls a very stable base for the other reserve banks to use as reserves. So the reason we're having this conversation is we want to talk about the Fed, how the Fed has done since 1914 and why maybe it's not getting straight A's on its report card. Um, when it was formed, and I'm referring, I, I think, something to George that you, you wrote that was... Number one is three things. Promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, moderate long-term interest rates, and then also overall to contain financial disruptions and prevent the spread outside, prevent their spread outside the financial sector. So 1914, have the Federal Reserve, and then how how how, I mean, how things go? Hasn't worked tell, out so tell, well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've I, we've got one of uh, in the developed world. We've got one of the worst track records in financial stability of any country, uh, just at a higher level. So we've had more banking crises than most. Uh, George has done a lot of work on this air, on this as well. But even uh, Charles Calamaris is another. Um, it, it's well documented in. Since 1970, we're one of only two developed countries, or one of only three developed countries, two developed countries to have more than one banking crisis. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, so just from a banking stability standpoint, that hasn't worked out. Um, and most of a lot of the work that George has done has looked at a lot of the macro sort of the, the macro results, if you will. Could you say that the Fed has stabilized the business cycle? Could you say that it has moderated prices or held to price stability? Well, you can only say that about price stability if you have the Fed's definition of price stability, <laughs> yeah. which is constant inflation. Um, and in terms of taming the business cycle, there's more than enough reason, more than enough evidence to say that they really haven't done such a good job on that either. So we've talked about inflation. You mentioned inflation. Now, we went through horrible inflation in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, and their mandate is to promote stable stable prices. And, and George, you had a chart in one of your presentations of what prices look like from 1790, roughly 100 years before the Fed was uh, was formed. I mean, what, uh, and it was fascinating how much prices rose. In the, in the days when you had a gold or silver standard, the price level 
couldn't wander very far before there would be responses from the ultimately from the gold mining industry that would check the movement in the price level and ultimately help it come back to where it came from. So the result, a natural result of a metallic monetary standard was long-run price stability, meaning literally that in the long run you could expect the price price level, that is the general costs of goods, to come back to wherever it had been in the past. And that's exactly what happened if you go by the best available statistics. The price level in the, on the eve of the Fed's foundation was roughly what it had been uh, uh, 140 years before. I think your before. chart said prices were up 8%. There was a that's, that's, that's not 8% annual. That's 8%, no, 8 in total. <laughs> and that just was happened where you started years. and ended the series. Yeah, that's right. So that's a, that's a long-run result of having a precious metal standard. And, uh, and, and, of course, we have to remember that for its early decades, the Fed was still bound by the gold standard. Uh, but uh, the question is, did, did, did things become relatively more stable given that uh, continuation of the gold standard than they had been before? And the evidence is they, it, they didn't become more stable. Despite all of the problems I was alluding to before about the pre-Fed system, because again, I can't say emphasize enough what a flawed system that was, uh, the Fed has done a dismal job Improve, even improving on that system, particularly during the Fed's first decades, which were notoriously you, you, you call, bad. You call the decades be, from 1914 to 1945? The practice period, the Fed's practice. <laughs> well, the reason I do that... It took them 30 years. Yeah, I do that on purpose. I have this study with uh, my uh, former UGA colleague, Bill Straps and Lawrence White from uh, George Mason, where we very carefully compare the available evidence on all the commonly accepted criteria of the Fed's performance. And we compare uh, the, that performance with the performance of the pre-Fed system with all its flaws. And what we find is, first of all, if you include those decades, those first decades up through World War II, it is so patently obvious that the Fed has not improved things that it almost seems a little bit harsh to point it out. <laughs> so what we did was we said, all right, let's cut them a little slack because they've got to get their sea legs and all that. <laughs> and let's leave out the Great Depression and World War II and World War I and the inflation after World War I. Let's just leave that out and make these same comparisons about unemployment, the price level stability or predictability, yeah. number of cyclical fluctuations, uh, number of crises. Let's do that. Just compare the post-45 period with those decades before the Fed, including things like the panic. Of, we didn't take out the panic of 1907, but we took out the Great Depression. And the <laughs> Fed, in that case, the Fed doesn't look a lot worse, but it doesn't improve things very much. In some respects, things are e still, even that way, the Fed comes out as inferior. So this, I think, is reason for people to ask, can't we do better than this? And, and basically, you have the one period, which the, the period that you alluded to in the, in the early 80s, you have this, it's come to be called the Great Moderation. And if you take out that period, 
then the Fed's track record. The is make really broader, bad. That, that's when Paul Volcker came in and took 18% rates down. The inflation to, it's came down. actually, yeah, well, it actually, the great moderation starts with Paul Volcker. Yeah. Uh, uh, depending on when you date it, but it continues virtually up until the great financial crisis. So it's a it's a fairly long period when there was considerable stability. Uh, but it was unique. It was unique. It was one of these eras. There are a couple of them in the twenties. Look like another one when the Fed's performance looks pretty good. But then you have all these other periods when bad things are happening. Well, one of the the thing that's fascinating now is that most of us think of the Fed, and I don't anymore now that I've done a little research on it, think of Fed as this omnipotent institution filled with geniuses that can gently guide us through economic good times and bad times. And uh, that it, it absolutely has, that has not been the case. And But it also has been given the responsibility to do a lot of things that any Federal Reserve or any central bank is not equipped to do, like maintain employment what's the, what's the link between what would a federal reserve have to do with maintaining low on low uh, low unemployment How does well that work? and what's interesting about that one too is that their own statements say that that uh maximum employment in the long run it has very little to do with monetary policy that they have they they can't really do much about it but okay so they're saying don't grade us on that curve well that's yeah, yes, that's partly yeah the, the the truth is and i think Everyone recognizes this, that, that, that it, the, the, the Fed, any central bank, is capable of causing a lot of unemployment if they botch things up. So in a sense, we, we should want the Fed to care about unemployment, at least to the extent of caring about not doing things that cause more of it than is necessary. So I think that has to be considered one of their responsibilities. Where things get dangerous is when people expect the Fed to be able not only to behave responsibly enough to not contribute to unemployment, but to be able to solve and eradicate all unemployment problems, mm -hmm. no matter what their ultimate source is. That's when you get into trouble because you start having people look at the Federal Reserve as having the power not only to keep things reasonably stable so that it doesn't contribute to unemployment, but also to, to get everybody, to get a, everybody job, a job, yeah, which is, yeah. that's asking more from monetary policy than it's capable of achieving. And unfortunately, that is, there's always pressure on the Fed um, to do that because people believe it has the power to do mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. Well, let's come up. Let's let's come to more recent history. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, what what did the Fed do before that period, and then how did they behave during the crisis, and how would you have done it differently? Oh wow. Uh, yeah, on the on the technical side, what did they do, or just well, just whatever what happened? You know, just explain it to well, somebody who hasn't spent as much time as you have working through the. Uh, so, so part of their mandate is to sort of to <clears throat> dovetail off of what George is saying is to not screw things up. So if you're on if you're on the Fed board, you don't want a major depression. You don't want a major recession. You don't want to crash the economy. Um, if the economy is crashing all around you, the last thing you want to do is tighten the money supply 
so to speak, so that nobody can get any funds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to make things worse. And that's what happened in the Great Depression. That's what Ben Bernanke apologized to Milton Friedman for at an American uh, Economic Rep- uh, Association conference. Not when, that the Great Depression was Ben Bernanke's fault. Not that it was his fault. But then when Ben Bernanke <laughs> was I thought we running, blamed everything on him. <laughs> almost, but almost. not everything. No, no but when did he, when did, but what then, year did he apologize to Milton Friedman? Oh, that this was in the, the... Friedman's birthday around 1999. 90? 99. Okay. And then when Ben was running the Fed, they did almost exactly the same thing. Uh, there's good evidence. We've documented this. I've got some papers on this. George has some papers on this. That at the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008, when the Fed should have been increasing more liquidity into the system and flooding the system with liquidity, they tightened at exactly the wrong time. And that almost definitely, I would say definitely, uh, Worsened the crisis and made things uh, made things prolong things. We tend we tend to uh, forget that uh, for many many decades after the Great Depression, no one thought that the Fed had been to blame for it. It was only when Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz published their Monetary History of the United States in uh, in uh, 1963 that they changed the perception of what the Fed had done during the 30s to the modern one where we recognize, then Bernanke recognizes that the Fed had really done a bad job. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of thing may happen again. Right now, it's still too early, and you still have the narrative where uh, Bernanke's Fed, in this case, came to the rescue and did everything that could be done right. But I believe as time passes, it'll become more and more evident that the Fed... uh, that the Great Recession was, to a considerable extent, uh, another Fed botch job. Norbert mentioned the over-tightening, but of course we shouldn't forget that in the years leading up to the financial crisis, uh, we had, of course, a tremendous housing bubble. And there is considerable evidence that the Fed's uh, policies were too loose and contributed to that bubble. It's controversial, but I think if you look at the statistics, it's 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 pretty clear that the Fed contributed something. It's hard to say exactly how much. Mm-hmm. And then, as Norbert was saying, when when uh, 2008 came along, what you had was the opposite error of over-tightening, and that's the part that kind of resembles the Fed's misconduct in the early 1930s. And uh, here it must be said that, uh, that uh, proponents of absolute maintaining an absolutely stable price level contributed to that uh, on the Fed, the Hawks. And I've written about this, uh, so you want me to be controversial, so I'll get in trouble uh, with some people now. Let's do that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are circumstances when you really don't want the Fed to try to act to prevent prices from rising. In the summer of 2008 was one of them. There was a big increase in the... not a big increase, but there was a inflation was creeping up four percent and then above. It was all driven by oil. It was all a commodity supply shock. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the sort of thing that you don't want to tighten. Mm-hmm. You don't want to tighten to. They should have ignored it. Instead, they were so obsessed about avoiding four percent inflation that they uh, they they decided that they were going to keep money tight. By hook or by crook, and this is just banks are starting to get in trouble and fail, 
And uh, they even did something called sterilizing their lending. So they were creating reserves by emergency lending. Oh, here's another one of those terms. Terms. We're, but st- we're sterilizing. This yeah. is, we're we're going to make this sexy. I'm going to. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're making loans to banks, financial institutions that are in trouble. But, and that creates more reserves because the Fed's expanding its balance sheet, so it's making loans, and uh, the result of this is that there are more and, dollars. And, and, and they the bought system. massive amounts of junk mortgage paper. That's later. Okay. That's oh, right. Okay. All right. The, that's after First there was the bailout. First then there was the, the bailout. Okay. First there's the direct emergency lending to yeah. the financial system. But to offset the reserve creation that that in, normally would involve, the Fed is selling securities. So it's, it's engaging in security sales in 2000, late 2008, not purchases, to offset its lending. All of which is aimed at trying not to let the inflation rate stay above 4%. In the meantime, we know now that the economy had been in a recession, according to the NBR, since uh, January of that year, or December, December 2007. So they're tightening money or keeping it tight, worrying about inflation when the economy's going down the, the, the toilet. Well, one of my core beliefs is this notion that decisions are made best at, right at the level of, of where the action is. And the further you pull back from the front lines, whatever, whether it's business or military or whatever, the less good information you have and the less easy, easily it is to adapt to what's happening. So we have a free banking system with, with banks with all of their branches. They can deal with that problems. Let's say you get a problem in Ohio, Ohio will deal with that, but it's not going to affect New Jersey. Here's the Fed, beautiful offices on Connecticut, Connecticut Constitution. What's the Fed's dashboard look like? I mean, you're sitting in an office in the Federal Reserve and we're talking about things like this. How clearly can they actually see what's going on? Yeah, but that's the, that is a huge problem. They have a gigantic dashboard, but it's so big <laughs> that uh, it's like some of these high-tech fighter planes where the capacity of the fighter planes could beyond envision the, in a Pentagon in, war room or right. uh, you know, it's beyond Dr. the capability or... of a human pilot to actually <laughs> know and handle all the knobs that are in okay. front of him. And uh, but this this gets to a point that I wanted to make in criticizing the Fed about its conduct in 2008 or in 2005 or in any other time. We have to be careful. It's one thing to say, look how they screwed up. Another to suggest that if only the right people were there and they had the right dashboard, that they could have done it right. This is an institutional problem. Exactly. It's this not... is this is you can't do this. Yeah. These you the, no one can be a good the, These banker. are not bad people. These are not dumb people. Very, these are good people. They're yeah. well intentioned people, but structurally you can't know all the things we have you need to know to, to make these changes. So impossible. when we're talking about yes. criticizing the Fed, yes. we're not talking about people. That's we're exactly right. We're talking about the system that, that's being yeah. operated. Because if you're talking about people, you get into the fallacy that, oh, if we just put the right people on the board, then everything will be fine and the institution will run. run well, that uh, would have been well. true had we gotten Steve Moore. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk about that. Okay. But... Um, but it, but uh, it is an institutional problem. It's it's trying to centrally plan what uh, we are not capable, and no one is capable of centrally planning. And it is the case that a free banking system 
does, can do a lot to handle these problems itself, partly because it's a more robust system, so financial crises are simply less likely to happen and to drag down the system with them, but also because the decentralized banks do have better local signals about where there are changes in mm -hmm. demand for mm -hmm. money that need to be compensated about the circumstances that call for more or less credit creation. And, uh, and, little, and mistakes by free banks don't matter as much because they're not all acting the same way. Well, <laughs> you have independent errors. You don't have one big error driving the whole system. Well, one of the, one of the things I think that caused the crises, the mortgage crises, was this notion that we were beginning to securitize, package and securitize mortgage loans. Absolutely. And when I was a baby banker, you had a business where you knew who you were lending to and you also knew whose deposit you were taking. And you're in the same institution, and so you, and you could also know what was going on in this neighborhood or that neighborhood, and make adjustments accordingly. We started packaging these in the securities. The people originating the loans didn't have any idea um, where it was going to go, and the people that owned the paper didn't know what was happening with the underlying mortgages. Absolutely, this was a big problem, securitization, and of course, that raises the question of of the role of the. Uh, of the GSEs of Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac. Ultimately, the federal government. Government-sponsored government government enterprises. Yeah, okay. That's right, because we, we, we want to be careful in, in pointing out uh, the errors of the Fed and how they contributed to the crisis uh, to not suggest that there weren't other factors involved, including other government agencies that, uh, that contributed to the developments that led to that disaster. Yes. Yeah, the GSEs certainly belong on that list. Well, one of the things that I want to understand better is that I thought the Fed was built to promote sound money and stable prices, and we were not. And, and then inflation was basically a way to rob rob your children of the future and to, and to borrow money that you otherwise wouldn't borrow in the capital markets. And yet they have a standard of, of two percent inflation which means i don't know how quickly money loses half its value but it's it's pretty it's pretty rapidly it's 70, 70 so uh, where did where did two percent inflation 30, 30 uh 35 years 36 years okay where, where did where did where did having two percent inflation become a good thing well, I mean, some would say it's not a good thing. Oh, I would say it's but, not a yeah, good thing. Yeah. But when did the Fed? <laughs> I heard that something about New Zealand. So they didn't. To start, so yeah. Well, we didn't have an we didn't have an inflation target a formal formally we didn't have an inflation yeah. target of two percent until was it twenty uh, twelve? That's right. January twenty twelve was when the Fed formally embraced two percent, but it had informally had that as its uh, objective long before. And I think the history of that starts in the 80s. Paul Volcker is bringing the inflation rate down from double digits. There are many economists, mostly Keynesians, who say, look, you know, it's already down to 5%. It can't go any lower. We're going to really have problems in the labor market. And, uh, and then you have still monetarists holding out for the ideal of, of uh, literal price stability, which is a zero long-run mm -hmm. inflation rate. And 2%. Which is what we had in that century we talked about, the 19th yes, century. absolutely, that's yeah. right. And for some time afterwards, mm -hmm. at least for certain periods, like yeah. the 1920s. 
I think partly the 2% outcome was simply a compromise among, uh, between the, 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 the Keynesians and the monetarists. It was, okay, well, we'll, we'll meet halfway and do 2%. That was part of it. It was also, though, there has been a long-standing uh, argument in economics. It goes way back to centuries. Uh, saying, well, a little inflation helps to grease the gears of industry and the labor markets, etc. So if we have a little inflation, it makes unemployment less serious. It's not quite the belief that more inflation always gives you more, uh, less unemployment. Uh, that belief had been pretty much put, put, put paid to by the great stagnation of the late 70s and 80s. But, but there grew out, there, there developed instead uh, uh, the popular belief that two uh, percent means less frictional unemployment; people can find their job. That also had a big influence on the rise of this two percent ideal. And it is true; it's a remarkable phenomenon that the Fed managed to just slip into this, mm -hmm. as did many other central banks, because two percent became the common ideal among other central banks around the same time. They slipped into that with very little actual public discussion and debate, with very few people saying, wait a minute, this isn't Maybe price stability, great, this yeah. isn't <laughs> what the mandate says. And they have gotten away with that. Um, uh, well, and it, now they're it, pushing it, for it, three. But, it, but it, raises, <laughs> it raises one of the issues in my, in my opening about the Fed's independence. And there's some people that believe that the Fed should be above all politics and all intervention and all agendas from anybody else and it should be you know the the omnipotent seven people who decide in their wisdom what to do and then there are other people that say no it should be politicized to the extent that we ought to have a say in whether the target's going to be two percent or, or zero and i'm on the let's have them accountable standard uh, our side rather i want the the standards to be there i want to so you don't think the fed independence is something no i don't uh, I mean, I, if, if we're talking about do I want a, a, a president to constantly go in and say this is what we need to do every single day. Well, we have head, a president like that. Yeah, trying, and, yeah. and maybe that's not ideal. Yeah. I understand that. But on the other hand, that president can lose the next election that he faces if people don't like what he's doing. So that's better in my mind than having somebody at the Fed for 14 years doing whatever they want and nobody knows what they're doing or how they're doing it. Um, and if you look over the, the history of this, they have not been politically independent. Um, and when you start talking about unemployment and inflation Well, didn't and Richard Nixon and, and George Burns get, or Arthur Burns get together Burns. regularly to yes, talk about oh, yeah. Yeah. goosing the economy yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> he could get reelected? Yeah. They're, they're yes, on the... Lyndon Johnson uh, 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 physically assaulted the previous Fed chair, Mayor, uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, was, that, was that Martin? Did he, that was, was, that, was uh, that Mayor? Please, no. Yeah, anyway, no, it doesn't no. matter, but yeah. Why is his name escaping me? That's terrible. Um, you know, Arthur Burns and Nixon are on the Nixon tapes making fun of the idea that the Fed is independent. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was a joke. Uh, and... Historically, it is something of a joke because they have not operated independently. In the 2008 financial crisis, you have the Fed and Treasury working very closely to implement the bailouts and, in, in their mind, save uh, the financial universe, which is fine if 
I mean, in my mind, again, that that's how it should be. It should all be out in the well, open. Well, they are interrelated and, in their function. And they certainly are. And we should drop the fiction that they're not. George, where are you on that? Well, I, I, I don't quite want to drop the fiction such as it is. Uh, I think that, uh, that, that it so is we can desirable. Disagree. It is desirable for the, the Fed to, uh, uh, for the government to keep its hands off day-to-day -day Fed decisions. And I think that, uh, that it should be uh, an understanding that, that direct pressure from the government on the Fed to alter its monetary policy is, though it's something that is bound to happen, is not something that the Fed should easily yield to, uh, because because presidents and administrations have their own short-run concerns that are something some often contrary to the needs of a stable economy, like getting reelected. So uh, I think the idea of Fed independence. And what little independence it enjoys is worth uh, trying to preserve. On the other hand, Congress absolutely has a, uh, the responsibility both for dictating the mandate that the Fed should follow and for seeing that it actually does follow it. So I think it's a mistake for Congress to simply defer to the Fed and say, well, if you can want to define price stability this way, that way, or the other way, that's fine. Because at that point, Congress is not doing its job. But well, that's, what's hap that's what happened. That is well, what's happened. But in another, but, it's related context. There's a lot of people. Peter Wallison's one of them that, and, and uh, um, talked about the administrative state and about how Congress is really punted to give to the agencies, not the agencies, the the uh, oh, yeah. cabinet uh, departments, full full uh, full authority to do things, so they don't have to take responsibility for it. And so I guess and, this and is analogous. And the independent agencies. Yeah. 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 Definitely. No, they're, they're, they it's, can, it's, it's analogous. They, they, uh, the Fed enjoys uh, as, aspects of independence that are undesirable and, and sometimes doesn't enjoy the kind of independence that is desirable. And uh, uh, so <laughs> ideally, you want the Fed to be accountable. You don't want uh, the federal government uh, dictating monetary policy. For one thing, if Congress had control over monetary policy, they'd have the Fed pay for what, whatever, you know. And, and well, that would be called modern monetary. Theory, that exactly would be called which modern I wanna, monetary I, theory. Which I want to let yeah. me let yeah. me and tell, tell me about. It sounds like it sounds dangerous. I think it is dangerous, Bill. First, it first, is what is it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> modern monetary theory. If you had to, it, it is first of all, it's not a theory; it's a cluster of ideas, and it's not modern. <laughs> Well, some of them are not modern at all. That's right. Many of them are quite old-fashioned. It's a cluster of ideas, and we have to. It, it's necessary to say that because uh, they'll quickly point out, "Oh, you've left this out. You left that out." So they have ideas about guaranteeing jobs for everyone. They have ideas about the origins of money. They have ideas about how money is created. In fact, in our modern monetary system. And they also have normative ideas about what the Fed should or shouldn't do and what Congress should or shouldn't do. I think, though, that the, the aspect of modern monetary theory that's got everyone's attention these days, which is the one we probably should talk about, is one that says that, that uh, a, a nation like the United States that has its own sovereign uh, uh, currency, fiat currency, 
never has to worry about not being able to pay its bills because it can always print all the money necessary and it doesn't have to worry about deficits because it can always fund the deficits. And uh, uh, the danger, what makes all of this dangerous is precisely the fact that in some respects it's true, but it's not true in the respects that most matter. It is literally true that a country can always, with fiat money, can always pay any amount of expenses. It is not true that it can do that without adverse consequences, like potentially uh, hyperinflation, for example. Now, here's where these guys get really dangerous. They're tricky. Every time they write about the government's unlimited capacity through monetization to pay all of its expenses, any amount, Green New Deal, you Monetization means they just issue more money. Issue more money to cover the expenses. Right. Whenever they say this, they're always pretty careful to somewhere say in a side note, oh yeah, well, if, if, if of course if inflation starts to break out, then we have to take steps to change it. And by the way, they believe that Congress should control inflation by regulating taxes and spending to do that, which is itself a, a real can of worms, right? For anyone who knows how Congress congressional decision making works. But anyway, you're not making me feel optimistic. I know. So put that aside. So they have they always make a point of mentioning inflation. Yeah. But they have 20 paragraphs saying we can pay for anything, no problem. And then they have one saying, of course, if there's inflation, we'll have to do something. And what they've done is to build an immense popularity based on 19 paragraphs that talk about how we can pay for everything <laughs> by printing money. And ignore the, the last paragraph is, don't, you know, pay no attention to the paragraph behind the curtain. But they drag that out if a critic like Norbert or me says, you know, this is really dangerous stuff. This could lead to inflation. They say, don't you read our theories? You haven't paid any attention. Look at paragraph 20. It says... We have to worry about inflation. On page this, six and four-point font and uh, exactly. as a footnote. <laughs> this Something is, like that. So, yeah. so they're very, very slippery because they say the things they have to say to, 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 to evade the, the obvious criticism that paying for everything by printing new money can lead to high inflation. But, but their popularity rests on not drawing too much attention to that caveat. <laughs> well, we've got a few minutes left. I want to take us from where we are to where we want to go. But before we go completely to where we want to be next, I'm going to finally learn what quantitative easing is. We've been hearing about quantitative easing for years. So what is quantitative easing in uh, three sentences or less? Basically, it's the central bank buying uh, uh, large amounts of assets. Okay. Not treasury securities, but they can well, be treasuries. They could they can be treasuries. Be treasuries, could be treasuries. But, all right, so their balance sheet's gone from eight hundred billion to set three point seven three point eight trillion. Right yes, now, that's right? about right. Yes, mm -hmm. and not, it had been higher, and they shrunk it a little bit. So, but there's more to it than that. Of course, that's my banks, one, That was my one sentence. Yeah, <laughs> he gets one. We, we cut was, you off. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. They they. They buy, central banks have bought assets in the past, of course, but quantitative easing is, refers to buying a lot of, modern, uh, of assets at the same time that either interest rates are at zero or the Fed is paying enough interest on bank reserves to get the banks to hoard any reserves that they create. So quantitative easing is a policy of making up for the fact that banks aren't 
are, are just hoarding as many reserves as come their way, as much cash as comes their way, making up for it by creating that much more cash. So the idea is, if you're in a situation where small amounts of, of asset purchases and reserve cash creation don't do anything because the banks are just clinging to whatever is So creating. we're not expanding the economy by then the regular if we amount. do enough of that, then maybe it'll still do something. I still think I'm... Professor Selgin, I might so flunk, the, I might flunk your midterm exam. Uh, so, the, so, so normally the central bank would be buying things to get money out into the economy. Well, well let me they would let be me, buying treasuries. Let me, let me break it down. Bank reserves. But the way the good old days, the Federal Reserve would provide some reserves to the commercial banks, and the commercial banks would turn around and lend that out, and that would be stimulative to the economy because presumably they're going into the hands of borrowers that are going to build things and do things right. and grow businesses. The reserve creation normally would mean that the cost of funds has fallen. Banks see this as an opportunity to make more profitable loans. And, and they're not making any money on reserves because they're paying no interest. But then when the yeah. Fed says, look, we're going to pay you 2%, then the banks say, well, look, this is a pretty safe deal. We're going to hold on to it. That's so right. they don't go out and stimulate uh, uh, businesses and, and economic right. growth. That's right. Not the usual way. So the Fed, Fed uh, could create uh, large amounts of reserves again today, but given the new setup of interest on reserves, it wouldn't stimulate the economy in the usual way. But their theory, they have these theories that they developed during the crisis that said, but if we do enough of that, maybe it'll have some other stimulative effects, like getting rid of the risk premium on long-term bonds. That's one of the popular ones. Um, so you're co-chairman of the Fed right now, and we're, we are where we are. We've got a $3.8 trillion balance sheet. We're paying interest on reserves. We've lost a lot of flexibility about how to, how to manage interest rates, manage money, that sort of thing. What do you, what do you do? How do you, where do you, where do we go from here? I would go back to normalizing in the sense that everybody took it originally back in 2008 which is mm -hmm. we're going to get back to what we normally do so we're going to over time slowly not dump everything but over time get rid of these assets get back to a balance sheet that's closer to where we were um, stop paying interest on excess reserves i don't necessarily have a problem paying interest on the reserve itself but not on excess reserves um, and try to get back to an interbank lending market, which is very important, a very important part of the system and a very important part of a financial system. Um, and we don't have that now. So that's where I would go. We would go back to that. George? Yeah, I agree with Norbert. We have, we, for all its size before the crisis, the Fed was lean and mean compared to today. And, uh, and that system worked uh, reasonably well. It could be improved upon, but I think it's much safer in the long run to have a Fed that operates with a small balance sheet that's not able to engage in quantitative easing because that exposes the Fed to demands, all sorts of demands to buy these bonds or those bonds. And that's a dangerous situation, in my opinion, especially with modern monetary theorists lurking around. <laughs> and uh, And so... For both strictly economic and political reasons, I think the Fed uh, should uh, make a, a serious, a more serious effort than it has 
to truly normalize its operations so that we can at least have a Fed that's no worse than it was in 2007. That's not asking a lot, and we we certainly should try to aim for better still than that. We should hire, but But I think the present Fed is a much more dangerous uh, animal than even the Fed of the past. Yeah. With With the modern monetary theory crowd, they've... This is a bad time because what the Fed has done is set up a framework where these MMT guys can say, well, look, you guys can buy a whole bunch of assets. We don't have to worry about inflation. Yeah, you can just raise the interest rate. So the Fed's gone yeah. from lender of last result to the Congress's piggy bank. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. That is exactly what could happen. Yes. What it's, could we're, happen. We're, we're right there. I don't think Fed officials would want to uh, be buying Green New Deal bonds uh, in in uh, trillions of dollars. I don't think Jay Powell year. wants to do that. I don't Probably think they doesn't. want to do that. But the but. other point that shouldn't be ignored is that this gets back to the question of independence. Congress has raided the Fed's balance sheet in the past. It took its capital away on two occasions. It's left it with a very slim margin of capital, surplus capital. Uh, Cong- if Congress can do that, if they can eye the Fed's balance sheet and say, "Hey, here's." you know, a couple, $10 trillion worth of capital, let's take it. Why wouldn't they They look at the Fed and said, here's an unlimited capacity for quantitative easing. Let's take that too Mm -hmm. and fund much more. The the program isn't really fiscally advantageous because the banks have to get paid interest on reserves and it ends up being a costly way of funding government. But it looks advantageous to the public, and it bypasses the appropriations process. And you can bet there are a lot of congressmen who will say, even if this is bad fiscally, not Mm -hmm. the cheapest uh, way to fund things, it's the only way we could fund a lot of things (laughs) we'd like to get through. Mm -hmm. So once again, we're in Washington, and we're just shocked at the way this works. (laughs) Well, I've been in Washington for five years, so you have too. Well, I've been here longer. Yeah, you've been here longer. How can you possibly be shocked anymore? (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm being facetious. But uh, anyway, George Selgin, Cato. uh, uh, You can find George on the Cato website. He's written extensively on banking, free banking, prices uh, uh great body of work and uh i'm looking forward to having you back to talk some more about this but i think from my point of view we got about this far there's a lot further yeah, to go. there's a lot yeah. norbert um, heritage foundation um, head of the uh, center for data analysis extensive writing on dodd frank on uh on the normalization issues on the uh turning banks into utilities and you've yes. got a lot of interesting work on there highly recommend if you want to follow up on this, to go on the websites and look at those. In our case, I, I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you liked it, subscribe to the show on YouTube, YouTube or iTunes, and give us your comments on iTunes if you like uh, if you like what you're hearing and seeing. So, thank you, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, George. Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. 
Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.